Father, <clears throat> uh, I pray and, and uh, please do whatever you need to do amongst us so that you get the full glory and that we never, we never become complacent, that we never treat the bride of Christ as something common or uh, periphery, but that we really keep and maintain a passion like the church did in Acts chapter 2 when, when everything was on fire and everyone wanted to bring whatever they could, whatever they had, whatever uh, you laid on their hearts and throw it in the middle because there was an unbelievable joy in coming together, uniting together as your people for your purposes. I pray that you would not let our love grow cold. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So I thought uh, about a six-year anniversary, a six-year birthday. Uh, by the way, um, I feel pretty good about Antioch, and it's all like what you measure it against, you know, but I was thinking about measuring it against human years, not dog years, but human years, because I got little kids, and in human years, at age five is kindergarten, and, and you learn how to line up for the bathroom, uh, Age six is first grade, you learn how to read the clock and things like that. So measured against human years, um, Antioch's pretty good. Like we've done quite a bit of things and, um, and so it's, it's kind of fun to think, geez, if, if we've been able to be a part of so much together, um, what's still in front of us? But in thinking about six years of Antioch, I'm like what would, what would be the message I'd want to teach? And the message I want to, I want to bring this morning is on uh, the name of the Lord. It's, uh, the name of the Lord. It's something that is one of those kind of common phrases that comes and goes as you read Scripture. There's a lot of them. And the danger with those common phrases as you read Scripture, as they kind of come and go verse by verse and you see them so much, is that you think you know what they mean. Or I think I know what they mean. And they become... Um, Something that is so significant that it takes up so much real estate in Scripture ironically becomes common because of how routine it is or how, or how commonplace it, it is in terms of how much it shows up and how much we come across it. And so something that ought to uh, deserve so much attention usually ends up kind of slipping by. And so I think one of those things uh, in the Bible is this idea of the name of the Lord or the verses that talk about this idea of the name of God. And so I want to read just a bunch of them. There's so many that I thought about going to a couple, but then I decided I'll just read a whole bunch. Psalm 86, 9, <clears throat> all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Psalm 91, 14, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. Psalm 96, 2, sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Psalm 97, 12, rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. 
Psalm 104, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Psalm 102, 8, all day long my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. Psalm 103, 1 of David, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Psalm 105, 1, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Continues, glory in his holy name, and let those whose hearts uh, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 106:8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. Psalm 106, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Psalm 109, but you, O sovereign Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. Psalm 143, 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. Proverbs 30, verse 9, uh, where Jesus quotes the whole idea of daily bread. He talks about giving just enough. Otherwise, I I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the, the name of my God. It continues on in, in Isaiah and we get some of the um, strongest statements about God's name that we see in scripture. And it says this, Isaiah 29, 23, when they see among them their children the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of of the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. In Isaiah 30, God talks about uh, his name and judgment and says, See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. And so this idea of judgment coming from afar with distant nations is literally put underneath the idea of the name of the Lord Isaiah 42, verse 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Isaiah 47, 4, our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 48, 9, for my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. And Isaiah 50 says this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. If you will, just turn to Matthew chapter 6. Let's look at Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays, and it's supposed to be a template or a model for how we pray, and we miss one of the key tenets of this prayer, we focus on the actions, we focus on our doing. We always tend to focus on what we see in front of us and, and what our hands have to do. But listen how Jesus sets it up. He says, this then, uh, so this is chapter six, verse nine of Matthew. 
This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed, a form of holy, means literally set apart. Yes, this idea that Jesus starts with the name of God and says, as you pray, you begin by recognizing the majesty, the glory of God, the supremacy of God, the bigness of God, and you set apart his name and say, your name is set apart from everything else. Everything begins and ends here. It starts here. This is the point of reference. This is the axis by which everything else finds its location. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, let me pray about what my hands find to do or what the desires of my heart are as I move out into this world. But all of that is set against this frame of reference that says, your name, God, is what matters most. Your name, God, is where it begins. And so we see this idea of the name of the Lord all throughout Scripture. If you go to... um, Different dictionaries and encyclopedias, you'll find all sorts of different lists detailing what the name of the Lord is. So we see all these passages in Scripture that just talk about the name of the Lord, but there are different names, specific names, wrapped into this broader category of the name of the Lord. And so you can see literally as many of, as, as um, 900, I think, is the biggest list that's out there. Uh, or you can get a list of 100, but it's everything from advocate to anointed one to comforter, cornerstone, the everlasting father uh, with Jesus, the good shepherd, uh, the great I am, Jehovah, the one who provides, and the Lord of lords. And you see name after name after name, specific names that go into this bigger category of the name of the Lord. Now, it's an interesting thing. The name of the Lord is very abstract. I think it's one of the reasons why it's easy to pass on it. In seminary, you you learn that the bulk of sermons, actually, they've done studies on it. Do you want to know where the majority of sermons come from? What, um, What category of scripture? Like there's different categories like the history books, the, the law and the prophets, etc., the wisdom books. Do you want to know what category of scripture most sermons come from? What's that? Yes, you want to know. That's a great answer. It's a great answer. It's, that's a really great answer. Uh, the majority of sermons come from Paul's epistles. And the reason for that is of all of Scripture, Paul's epistles are the most specific with regard to application. It's very uh, didactic. It's very, it's very linear and, and very boiled down. Don't do this. Do that. This is bad. This is good. I mean, it's very, very specific to the life of the New Testament church and believing Christians. And so most sermons come out of Paul... Uh, the Gospels, I think, in the study that I looked at was next, um, and then kind of on down. But most sermons come out, out of Paul, I would put forth, because you can boil it down into a three-point sermon. 
You can boil it down into the steps that believers need to take. You can boil it down into very practical things. And, and we love very tangible, objective, practical things. They're, they're very easy for us to grab hold of, to know exactly what's being talked about, to know exactly how that looks in my life. There's not much uh, bridging across or trying to find how this would contextualize into my life. One of the, one of the books, uh, kind of categories that doesn't get talked on too much are the history books. You don't, you don't hear much out of um, the Samuels and, and Chronicles and, and things like that because this long kind of drawn out story of the nation of Israel, how, how does that bridge to the life of a Christian, a man or a woman at age 35 or 20 or, or 50. It takes a lot of work. It's, it's deriving the principle. What was God doing through the Israelites? What's the principle at work in that passage or over many, many chapters and distilling it down to kind of the, the central truth, if you will. And then that central truth you got to take and say, now how does that central truth then bridge into today's context for today's believers, and you can certainly do it. Well, you know, an easy one is Joseph. And Joseph gets sold into slavery, and time after time he's beat down, and then finally God works through him, and he brings him to this point, and his brothers come and bow down before him, and, and he says, listen, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. Now, just that one verse and how Joseph handled the challenges and the suffering and the difficulty in his life and recognized the hand of God and the sovereignty of God above that, you, you can make application of that, right? There's different ones too. You, you can say that God, prior to a drought, was at work in providing famine relief to continue uh, the life of and the lineage of his people, it's an interesting one. God was at work in the business of famine relief to take care of his people in using the story or, or one man in that process, Joseph. And you can ask yourself, so what does that say about how God views food and famine in the world today? Paul went and took collection from Greek churches to send back to Jerusalem Jews who often had um, treated them poorly to take basically an offering to send back for famine relief halfway across the world. You know, what does that say about the church today? But you can grade out different aspects of history books, but it's a little bit harder than Paul's epistles. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, thank you. So when we talk about the name of God, does this fall into this really concrete, objective, easy to grasp, easy to apply concept, or is it, is it diffuse and is it out there? I, I think it's rather abstract and I think that's why we don't talk about it too much. Let me, um, let me try and bring it down just a bit though and say we all understand the concept behind it. We just don't attach the concept to that phrase, uh, the name of the Lord or the idea of name. Let me, let me illustrate this way. Um, the value of a name or how much is wrapped up in a name. Joe Paterno. 
Lance Armstrong. Um, you got the Charles Mansons and the Mother Teresas. You can really, when you put it to a specific instance, recognize how unbelievably powerful, unbelievably powerful and significant this idea of a name is. Uh, in today's society, for the last, I don't know, um, there are people that be able to give the stats more, but at least the last decade as I've been paying attention and maybe even longer, this idea of a brand has been so significant in almost every sector of business. You know, politics, the Republican brand is, you know, uh, to uh, things like Apple and trying to fight through uh, PC versus Mac and everything else, this idea of a brand name because industry and marketing and business and strategist and everything else has begun to realize there is so much power and potential and significance wrapped up into the mind space that is given to a brand name um, or an, an idea, a brand. Uh, Bill Cervelli, who chairs the Elder Board at Antioch, um, works a lot with this. He actually wrote a book called Branding for Dummies. Um, it, was, it was written for people like me. And he gives a stat that's fascinating. I never thought I'd use this in a sermon, but it's fascinating. Um, that there's a study once done that half the value, am I, is it okay to say this? Am I stealing intellectual property? Okay. Um, that half the value of the Coca-Cola company resides in the brand name alone. So if you, you, if you travel, you go to Africa, you go to other places, you'll see major bottling facilities. I mean, just massive, the, the assets of the Coke company. All the bottles they own in the world, all the employees they have, all the money they have in the bank, all the brown syrup, I don't know, they have distributed around the globe, uh, all the physical assets of Coke. Uh, a study basically says that that's only 50% of the value of that company. The other value just resides purely in the mental space that people have for Coca-Cola. In the, in the idea of its name, the brand, it's, that's unbelievable, isn't it? That's why uh, everything I've seen on, on the news the last couple days is, is uh, do you wear your Live Strong bracelet or do you cut it off? You know, there's actually people that have donated to uh, Lance Armstrong's foundation that want their money back. It's it, because the name has fallen on such hard times. So this idea of a name really isn't as abstract as we think. God uses that phrase, the name, frankly, I think, to boil down to specific rather than get away from it. So if I talk about um, math problems, I can't really say how good you are at math. I can't, I can't position you against it. I can't evaluate you. Um, but if I say math, period, I can probably evaluate you 
I mean, there's a whole lot that goes into that, a whole lot of little problems that build up into the broader category, but I can now evaluate you against math. You're either good or bad, or there's a test that hits all the aspects of math, and you grade this way against math. And so you you can locate it and evaluate it, and it becomes a measurement when you kind of really say, this is the category. When God is saying my name, he's taking all, this is what the, the Hebrews believed, that there's so much in a name that all of your character and identity is wrapped up in your name. And when God says my name uh, or my name is the judgment that's coming, he's saying everything I feel, my emotions, my character, my will, my values, my intentions, all of that is wrapped up in my name, who I am, in my identity. And so God kind of boils it down and says, my name matters. And when we say the name of the Lord, we can now say, where does that rank in our or my value system? When Jesus says, the Lord's name, God's name, the Father's name needs to be set apart first and foremost before we move on to other things. He's trying to place it uh, against other values that we can have. When God says you should have no other name above my name, what God is saying is when you put my name down, nothing else should, should be higher than my name. Nothing else should be getting more praise than my name. When things are really great, this is a fascinating thing, by the way, when things are really great or really important, we tend to sing. We tend to sing. Go to a football game. Why, why are we singing at a football game? Why are we chanting? Whoa, you know, I was, AC, I, I was in the ACC. Do you guys know? You don't even know what I'm talking about. That's uh, Florida State, Seminoles. It's the only chant I remember because they were really good. We were really bad. I heard a lot of it um, in my years in college. Why are we singing at football? What does that have to do with football? But we sing. When, when, uh, when a band is really good, the enjoyment of the band is, is consummated in our being able to sing along with the band. When you put a playlist together for a, a Christmas party or a Christmas Eve party and you want people to think you're cool, which means you, you, know, you know how to pick the right music, you're going to pick the music that has been around. It's an anthem. And everybody knows it and everybody knows how to sing it. When something is great, we sing. It's a really strange, funny, weird thing. They go together. And that's one of the reasons why God is saying, you praise me. Sing to me. Because if you don't sing, I can tell you something. Your value of me is going to be small. If I come in on a Sunday morning and I see lackluster singing, it's a dangerous thing. It is dangerous Because I can begin to say, oh my gosh, is God big enough in the heart of this congregation? Because if if we can't sing or praise, I don't, you know what I'm saying? It's question. So when God is saying, you sing to me and you don't have any name above my name, all of a sudden we can stack things up and this gets really scary. Do I sing with more excitement to football? Do I sing with more excitement to music and celebrities 
do I, do I sing with more excitement to social media, which is really a form of amusement, which can really become an idol that, that takes my thoughts and my time and my energy and I get absorbed in it and I celebrate it because I'm there serving it. Do I sing more to that than I do to God? Do I sing more to money? When I, when I have my quicken and it graphs everything and, and I get to punch in and I get to watch the numbers and those numbers and the graphs and the lines, they're so fun and exciting. I don't do it, by the way. I gave up about uh, nine years ago. Pastors don't like seeing the numbers on their quicken. <laughs> so you just do away with it. Um, do I sing to that? If you're a single person, do you sing more to the desire for marriage or that person? Do you celebrate that person so much that they're the dominant priority? If you're a married person, if you're a guy, um, this is where pornography comes in. What are you bowing down to? What are you serving? What is getting your praise? And when we talk about the name of the Lord being set apart high above every name and that everything else has to locate within that, we begin to realize we can compare and contrast. And we realize that there are things that are competing for the allegiance of our heart. What was that verse I read? The people who acknowledge my name. Acknowledge means that day to day through the mundane aspects of life, that the little things that happen, we acknowledge God in that. Rather than the little things happening, we acknowledge something else. There is, there is a whole lot of life that can take our focus and we give acknowledgement to that, credence to that, and in doing so, we're not intentionally taking it away from God, but subtly, that's the effect, because all of falling away from God is subtle, by the way. Very little of it is, is, is dramatic and intentional, and God, I hate and reject you. Most of it is subtle, little by little, and our hearts get led astray, and we become more faithful to something else than we do to God. And so we acknowledge over here. And so is, is this what we acknowledge? Parents, the key to discipleship with your children is acknowledging in your heart and in your mind God because it's underneath the primary directive that God gives parents in Deuteronomy 6. It's the most one of the it's the most famous uh, Hebrew passage. And Jesus quotes it often. This is the the Shema, and this is the there is but one God. And then it says, "You parents, um, as you walk with your children, as you rise and as you sit, and and as the sun comes up and as the sun goes down, you talk to your kids about the Lord." And the idea is everything in life, every aspect in life, as you're walking through life, you, you, you lean into your kid and say, hey, listen, how do we need to handle this? 
How would God have us handle this? Hey, there's something we can see about the character and the beauty and the majesty of God in that sunset. Do you see it? Do you understand it? Do you see how that person just did that wonderful random act of kindness for that person? You know, there's something about God in that. It's better to give than receive. Do you see that? And look at the smile on the giver's face. That's joy. That's joy. And do you, do you see that person treating that person bad? Do you see that anger that, that comes up? It's just wrong. It just doesn't feel right. That's called righteous anger. So you see, because there's an anger that leads you away from, from what ought to be and where God's heart is, and there's an anger that coincides with what ought to be and where God's heart is. That's called righteous anger. It's good anger. It's appropriate anger. So when you see that, that's what righteous anger is. Now have that category. Go through life that way. Protect the weak and don't ever be the person exploiting. And we lean into our kids. But where does all that come from in us first? And being able to do that for our children. It comes in paying attention. It comes in having a frame of reference that all of life uh, unfolds in the, in, in the shadow of. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, give, give me my daily bread and help me to forgive people. All of this, all of the significant things of life are gonna be set against this. And, and as I acknowledge God, as I'm aware of God, as God's name is above everything else, when it's so big I can't miss seeing it, when it, and when it, when it informs everything else, when that's there, it's easy for me to see what I need to be passing on to my kids. So you parents, if you want to disciple your children, it starts with a fear of God, being in awe of God, acknowledging God, having regard for the name of God, which can be measured in your praise for God. How do you sing about God? What is your song like? What is the rejoicing like in your heart? What is the desire or the hunger or the crying out, which is a type of song like? When you come to God because you have needs, are you just throwing prayers at him or are you crying out because you realize he is the biggest thing and the only thing that really matters with regard to whatever you're struggling with? What is that song like? I, uh, this is all that matters to me. I want my kids someday to go, God, uh, God was evident in my dad's life. My dad wasn't perfect. He messed up. He messed me up a little. <laughs> But one thing I know about my God, uh, my God, my dad, um, is my dad feared God. God was the biggest thing. He put God first. He chose God. There was a passion or a song. And sorry, I want that. That means this has to outcompete in my heart everything else, which means anything that's going to do really well in my life, I need to intentionalize. I need to think about it. I need to revisit it. That's what the Sabbath is for. 
The Sabbath is the great reset button on a weekly basis to say, I want to go do other things. But God said, and am I going to really submit to that? Am I going to really obey God? Am I going to really sit and wait upon God and recalibrate that, that all of the craziness of life isn't more important than who God is and that he's ultimately in charge of the rain, whether the crops come in, what's going to happen uh, next week or next year. And that's ultimately what the Sabbath is. In other words, God says, intentionalize my name. Intentionalize your worship. Care about, labor over, fight for your regard for me. Protect your heart. Acknowledge me. Discipline yourself. Uh, spiritual disciplines. Discipline yourself into putting me first. This is a command. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. This is a command. Do not profane my name. It all begins here. I'm telling you this in terms of a command because you have to obey it. You have to plan for it. You have to build it in. And we lose that in consumer Christianity. We lose that in how easy, kind of easy believism Christianity can become. This doesn't make it law-bound Christianity or heavy Christianity or, or like killjoy Christianity. It makes it true Christianity that there's this opportunity to have this relationship with God that's dynamic, that's unbelievable, where he will fight for you and he will bless you and he will hear your cries if he is your God and you, you put him in his place and that we can do that by obeying obeying his commands because he's left them for us because he wants us to hear him because he knows what we need this is true Christianity it's something we can embrace it's messy and it's raw but we can sink our teeth into it and then we can help each other and iron sharpens iron and we can encourage each other and it's not just about Sunday morning was the worship good was I entertained was it fun was it this now it's on to our life but it's like there's something we're doing here and we got to get into each other's lives because we will do this better together than we will alone. We will. I, I got to see uh, Mike and Ann Mara a week and a half ago. Mike and Ann, one of the first missionary couples we were able to send there in Kajabi outside of Nairobi in Kenya. <clears throat> and Mike uh, will tell you he's one of the most unlikely uh, gung-ho Christians that God has ever created. And he says to me, Ken, go back and tell everyone at Antioch, if God is asking you to do something, if God is telling you to do something, if God is putting something on your heart, to do it. He says, you will not believe how unbelievable this has been. You wouldn't believe how, how we've just slotted right into this and all the fears disappear and all of the, the, the rewards in some sense come that this is what we were created for. And what begins to happen is the greater the tension of faith is, it's usually when God is trying to, to take us in a specific direction. And the more God is trying to take us in a specific direction, the more he begins to cut off other things. And the more other things are beginning to be cut off, the more fear there can be in our hearts. Yet when we respond in faith, realizing he's big enough and that God is faithful, on the, on the back side of that, we realize there's no better place to be than, than following our God. 
than having the North Star, than having that first thing put in its place and then letting everything else fall in. So here's this guy that would tell you he's the most unlikely Christian missionary and he's saying, go back to Antioch. Whatever God is putting on people's hearts, you tell them to do it, to not acknowledge other things, to not get distracted. Uh, Quickly, turn to Philippians with me. Philippians is in... um, the Pauline canon and, and Paul's letters. And we'll, we'll, in the next couple of years, we will do a series on the book of Philippians. We absolutely will, because this is one of the most amazing letters, at least in my life. They're all amazing in my life. And we see so much of this in here, but one of the, one of the key chunks of Scripture on the nature of Jesus comes in Philippians chapter 2. And it talks, I'll just read it from verse 1 down. But here's Philippians chapter 2, and this is Paul's admonishment, begins with his admonishment to the church. And he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of, because now this is the juxtaposition, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then here kind of comes this, this, this song, this poetic piece, and it says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Pride is a, a form of competition with God. Pride is putting yourself on the value system and saying how do I increase the value of self? Humility is saying it's not about me. And in, in making it not about you, you're not competing with God. And in fact, you celebrate the greatness of God. And so that's why all throughout Scripture, like in First Peter, it says, God gives grace to the humble. God can bless this. Bless basically means more. Go and do more of that. You know, when you bless something, you're affirming it. When you affirm something, you're saying yes to it. The beauty of humility is there's nothing impure in it that God would want to say no to. Humility is what he wants to bless. He says yes and he affirms it. God gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble, but he opposes the proud because he cannot affirm pride. He cannot affirm competition with the glory of his name. And so he has to necessarily by his character stand against it. And Jesus came and even though there was such influence and power and and position in him, considered that nothing. 
and humbled himself. And so God has exalted him to have the name that is above every name, that at his, his name every knee should bow. And the question is really, where is that name in our life? On the spectrum, where is that name in our life? They say, they say that you overestimate what you can do in one year. These are uh, you know, the business gurus, leadership gurus. The leaders are optimistic, they're idealistic, and you tend to overestimate what you can do in one year but underestimate what you can do in five years. You overestimate what you can do in one year. You underestimate what you can do in five years. That is so true. When, when we started this church, there were so many dreams for what would happen in one year, right? Um, I think I'm still waiting on some of those things to happen. But in five years' time, we have a national conference that's going to be in Philly this year with 5,000 people that has a name that goes throughout this country, the Justice Conference. And organizations like World Vision and IJM and, and Food for the Hungry and everything else are involved in this. It's, it's become the premier conference um, for justice, which I think is obviously something so, so close to God's heart. That was birthed out of this community. Every volunteer that stuffed a bag, everyone who put it on Facebook and let people know about it, everyone who showed up and worked parking, people that did security, everyone that prayed about it, bought a ticket for relatives and friends. This community helped birth that. I would have never thought that was possible to have things like that at, at that level of significance in five years. There's, there's, I never would have thought we would have interns from, what was it, 40 different universities in a five-year time span. We underestimate what we can do in five years. So as I look at the next, say, five or six years of Antioch, I think I'm tempted to say um, what big things, tangible things can happen that haven't happened yet. And I think there will be a lot. I think they will blow my mind. But I don't think, I don't, I know, I don't care about those things for the next five years of Antioch. I, I care about our song. I care about the praise at Antioch. We need to sing better. Have you noticed this? This includes me. We don't sing well. All of us. We don't, pr we don't really come in here I mean, I know because I'm here every week. We don't really sing well. And Justin's a worship leader, which means he facilitates and, and tries to lead us into worship, but he is ultimately not responsible for the song in your heart and in my heart and our willingness to be vocal and render praise to our God. I, all I care about over the next couple of years for Antioch is that we sing better because if we sing better then I'll know that we value God more than a lot of churches uh, the second thing we need to do is we need to do community better we need to do community better you know that the New Testament never really envisions um, 
free-flowing Christians not connected to a local, tangible, visible body of Christ, we've kind of abused the whole idea of a universal church and an invisible church. The universal church, the Catholic church, that phrase, the universal church, and then Zwingli came along in the Reformation and kind of coined the idea of the invisible church, meaning anyone and everyone who's, who's really a Christian, and it's kind of that thing out there. Well, certainly there is a category like that, Does that make sense? Certainly it's a logical category. But the idea of the New Testament is not that I aspire to be a part of the invisible body of Christ. It's when I get saved that I aspire to attach to a a visible, local fellowship of believers. And that I actually love people in that fellowship of believers and that I actually unite with that fellowship to love people in our city and that I actually encourage them and am encouraged by them and that I actually am there to be a model or representation for their children just as they are uh, for my children and that we are able to grow up in that but it's never envisioned that we're some free-floating thing and our, our, our allegiance is just to the National Football League. It particularizes, it ought to particularize with a specific body or church. In my generation, and my friends, and me even, we, we are so into just standing back and not getting sucked into it because that might require something of us. And it's so much easier to be critical when we stand back. And I am the critical generation. I came out of the womb being critical, you know, and I, I, I wake up and, you know, we are cynical and critical, is that just me or is it my generation? Am I, is it okay? Am I speaking for my generation? It's so much easier to, to make a distinction and then be able to be able to critique into that than being a part of it and owning it and then you can't critique anymore. And so we naturally distance ourselves and, and so we attend church and we identify with Christianity broad but we, we resist really, really engaging the relationships of a local church. And, and this is exacerbated by Bend, Oregon. Golly gee, if you haven't noticed yet, this town is unique. This is a unique town, the most dog-friendly town in, in the country. Did you guys read that one? We're also the, I think, fifth most entrepreneurial city in America. Every one of us here will say we want deep relationships. And we might really want it, but we are the most, the, the most apt to resist joining some kind of a group, signing on the dotted line for some kind of open-ended, long-term kind of weekly commitment. We say we want deep relationship, but we resist putting ourselves in the position to where we're stuck in community. Does that make sense? We got to sort some of that out because if we really lift God's name up and value what he creates by the body of Christ and the local expression of Christ, um, we're going to end there. I I tell you what, uh, there's a lot of people I'd love to celebrate. Um, Grace, who sings, was a former intern, been having a conversation. No, this isn't like celebrate, celebrate. This is like a different kind of celebrate. No, I'm serious. We had a conversation at Jackson's Corner about a month ago where she says to me, Ken, I just want to lead God's people in worship. That's just what I want. So she starts um, in a a week or two here is going to be a part of kids worship from now on once a month. 
That's, I, that, she's going to be in there leading my kids in worship. I love that. I think Terry Randstad's out doing security, but Terry retired, and he and Carol are eating top ramen. It's like they're in college again. I mean, I mean it. And they are mentoring all of these marriages at Antioch and doing pre-marriage counseling, and, and, and they're just attacking it. It's amazing to me. Um, Tish Mortensen, if you just go be around her, it's infectious, the passion she has for this church and the people of this church. Um, John Paldachuk, been around all six years of this church, has brought the trailer here every Sunday for six years of this church and has never missed a beat. I mean, do the math on that. That's like over 200. <laughs> what is it over? It's, I'm just grabbing. It's a lot. Where is John? You know how many trailer, you know how many trailer pulls that is? It's so anyways... John Powell Achuk pulls the Antioch trailer to the glory of God. I love it. I love you guys. I love this church. Let's together see what we can do to make his name known to each other, to this community, and to the world. My vision, my, my dream of Antioch is that we would be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and have a shaping voice in global Christianity. I'm blown away that God has allowed us to slowly grow up into that over the last five years. I'm unbelievably humbled to think what could happen over the next five years if, if it continues this way. I love that I'm on that journey with you guys. Let's together make his name known. Amen. Father, we commit this church to you. It belongs to you. It's yours. Don't let anyone else get the glory from it but you and you alone. We love you. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.